Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Smart, And I'm Evan Lucas, Chief Market Strategist. And, and this, this is For What, what It's worth. worth. Each fortnight, we'll discuss the topics that matter to you and the things that will affect your net worth. That's the bottom line. It's the baby boomer versus the millennial. For more insights from Australia's best financial commentators, head to www.investsmart.com.au. Now listen, um, now Evan, I've been doing some seminars with the CEO of Investmart, Ron Hodge, and the portfolio manager, Nathan Bell. Now, uh, it's about the last thing Nathan says in his presentation, but he talks about how the world, I mean, he's talking in general about how the world's changing and yeah. how a lot of uh, different pressures are coming on companies in re- in the um, context of ethical investing. But one of the reasons, he says, um, investors need to focus on ethical investing is that uh, millennials are becoming socialists, or at least he says that a, per- <laughs> a large percentage of millennials are socialists. I can't remember the percentage he quotes, but it's a lot of them. It's right up and there. It's about 70%, isn't it? It's, 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 something like that. Yeah. Well, and it's astonishing, right? So so you're a millennial, so therefore you must be a socialist too. Is that right? Uh, again, it depends what you define as, as a socialist. I, I I understand the thought process behind it. Look, in straight honesty, I wouldn't classify myself as as that. Um, well, that's a relief. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly don't see it in that respect. Look, I get his point. I mean, what he's talking about is when you look at ESG, so we're looking at environmental, social, and governance in terms of what's going on into that future sort of investment space. Clearly, it is certainly something that the younger generation, and let's point that out, the younger generation these days is defined as not just millennials, I hate that term, it's more about people under the age of 40. Um, who, Why do you hate that term? What's wrong Because with that? I think, again, it provides a point of view uh, and very narrow view of, of what a certain demographic of person is and I don't think it really plays out the way it should uh, in terms of where we sit because realistically what it also means is that do you look at a millennial from the point of view that they are socialist because they have a certain political view? Do they have a view about markets in a certain way? Do they view money and the way that they go about their daily business in a different way? I mean, the the big point around that is, is I'm sure you're well aware, and I know you've spoken about this before, is the whole avocado smash avocado issue that's been raising over the last couple of years. Now, all of that feeds into to that question. Getting back to what you're talking about with with what Nathan's been talking about, though, is that clearly the way that companies go about their you know, day-to-day operations and their business-to-consumer or business-to-business relations is changing. And in my view, there is definitely for the better. Now, the reason I want to look at that is because the next question from what you and I love talking about is, is whether or not what's happened in the post-GFC world, so since let's just make it 2009, which was the pretty much the very bottom of all the market issues and the stuff going on over in the US and in Europe and blah, 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 we here in Australia sort of sailed through it, was that has that scenario actually created the question you just raised of, of the socialists? And the reason I raise that is there were certainly a lot of people questioning what happened during that period and the amount of money printing where obviously in the US we didn't do this here in Australia, we cut rates, but we didn't actually physically print money and then lend it out to the general economy. Uh, the closest that maybe we got, it wasn't QE, it was more fiscal policy where we saw Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan actually giving you roughly, what was it, seven, eight hundred bucks uh, to go and buy some, some you know, whatever you needed to buy as a consumer. Uh, I, I think that's more the interesting part around this and 
probably my question to you, Alan, as somebody that looks at things from a more holistic point of view, but obviously a person that does have your own home, has investments. Do you think that QE has been, so printing has been good for the, you know, the generation older than 40 or bad? And do you think it's actually also gone the other way and actually been a bad thing for those under 40? Because that's the argument is that QE, yes, it supported assets, but it missed out on the generation that doesn't have assets who have an income, but no assets, but did help the, uh, the probably the generation that has assets, but not as much income as they once upon a time had. Yeah, well, look, of course that's true. Um, uh, no doubt about it. I mean, the whole point of QE was to boost the prices of assets as a way of uh, rescuing the economy, and it worked to that extent. But as you say, it left millennials behind. Uh, but there's much broader than that, I think. It was a quite interesting piece in The Economist um, about a week ago, headed Millennial Socialism, uh, and it proposed that there's a new kind of left-wing doctrine that's emerging, different to the old one, and it's kind of based around Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the new congresswoman and who's kind of this um, social media star in uh, US Congress, AOC they call her, and she's, um, I guess, socialist-ish, and she's uh, just released something called the New Green Deal, which is a, a play on the old New Deal um, from the 1930s after the Great Depression, and she's proposing a new Green Deal. So I actually think um, it's it, part of it is QE, but there's much more to it. And perhaps uh, one of the big things that's the, that the other part of it is uh, climate change, um, which is, you know, um, shown up in what Ocasio-Cortez is doing with the new Green Deal, um, because that's a lot about uh, climate change as well. And I think that... Um, there's a sense that I know it's it's obviously not um, uh, the you know sort of uh, all uh, baby boomers and older people who are in favour of doing nothing about climate change, but there's certainly a sense that uh, older people on the right are um, mucking up the planet for millennials as well. So there's uh, you know I think there's a financial issue, which is that um, housing became unaffordable, particularly in Australia. Um, uh, it's becoming more affordable now, obviously. Um, there's the climate issue. Um, and, you know, the, the it was quite interesting, The um, that smashed avocado uh, episode, where that came from was, um, uh, what's his name, the demographer? Bernard Salt came um, up with that. Bernard Salt. He put it. He wrote a column about, and the, what his what he was proposing, what he was saying was that people, that young people, millennials, were spending too much on breakfast and lifestyle. Mm. And the millennials came back and said, well, yeah, but we can't afford a house, so we might as well, right? I mean, so there's this huge so debate. The, yeah, exactly, the terminology. And now it. the smashed avocado has become code for the difference yeah. between, between millennials yeah, and Yeah, because the, the other side of that is, is you know, the – you know, they, they love an acronym in our generation, apparently, and, and YOLO, you only live once, is obviously it comes on to that. I just want to pick up on one point that you spoke about just before there, which was around housing. And I think the reason I want to talk about that and why I've quite enjoyed talking about QE is that coming back to an Australian-centric point of view, we have a scenario right now where the RBA is trying very, very hard not to cut rates, although it's starting to suggest that it could do that. However, if you listen to somebody like Guy Dobell, who's the deputy governor, so not Philip Lowe, but the deputy governor, he's certainly talking up the idea that if they were to do something in the future, there is 
no reason we here in Australia couldn't do QE as well. Uh, and that therefore brings into the idea that what we've seen overseas, could that play out here? I mean, look, housing prices have come back. There's certainly a lot of articles going around at the moment that, you know, it's never been a better time for first homeowners. As you alluded to, the question is whether or not they're saving or whether or not they're overspending. That's a different story. From my point of view, it'll be very, very interesting how QE would work in this country because we don't have markets that are maturers like the states and have the ability to put out debt products like they do in the states. But do you see QE as being a good or a bad thing here? And again, is it going to go towards inflating assets that already are inflated even with the pullback? Uh, and will it actually target the right company, well, the right part of the market? Well, I, I, mean, I must say, Evan, I reckon that if, if the RBA is into QE, that's because interest rates have been cut from one and a half to half a percent or less, um, and uh, the economy is in di- mm. deep trouble. There's obviously going to be ten. There'd be ten percent unemployment. We'd be in recession, um, and uh, the effects of QE on asset prices and possible sort of uh, millennials being priced out of the property market again would be the least <laughs> of our troubles. Very true. I mean, millennials, millennials wouldn't have a job. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, so so the talk about QE is highly theoretical, it seems to me, and would only come up, there would only be QE in Australia, quantitative easing in Australia, if there was a very deep, very difficult recession, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was not able to be dealt with by cutting interest rates, the main reason being interest rates are already pretty low and they've mm-hmm. stayed low. Um, and the reason they've stayed low, it's worth actually um, – you know, uh, reflecting on why it is that um, 10 years after the G- uh, the GFC, interest rates are still at 1.5%. And the answer is because they can't get inflation up. And uh, underemployment is still quite high. And also wages have stayed low. So, you know, I mean, we've seen so many people now on contract. I mean, people are just being hired on contract all the time. Um, they're, they're not getting proper – people aren't – companies aren't offering them proper jobs. You know, um, people are driving for Uber and um, on six bucks an hour or something. You know, so I think that there's a there's a there is a structural problem that's going on in society. Which, uh, you know, uh, will that be dealt with by Labor coming in and um, allowing the resurgence of the unions? Maybe actually, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, actually, uh, talking about that, actually, we've had a question that's come in from Taylor, and I think that's probably a really good point to start, which is that his question comes in and says, "Could the banks cut?" rates out of cycle like how they hiked in the past and the reason i find that interesting just talking about what we've talked about is that we have seen out of cycle rate hikes from the big four banks in fact all of the banks really of the fact that the other thing that's happened is the overall funding pressure to a banks have have obviously in their view increased and they have so we know that in this country we are pretty good at actually you know lending to ourselves so the term deposit holders out there that have you know basically provide almost 66% of the of that market, but obviously there's a third that's missing. That's gone up and that's what the banks have been arguing to passing through their, their reasons for increasing interest rates because that part of the market has increased over the last 18 months. The interesting thing from my point of view, getting to Taylor's question, is that same markets that have pushed rates up have now come back to the lowest level they've been in, in since 2016. So the argument Taylor makes is an interesting one. Could the banks cut rates? Personally, I don't think they're going to. I think at the moment they're trying to basically carve out as much sort of you know spare capacity as they can, considering net interest rates have been at the levels that they haven't liked for now two to three years. But it certainly begs the question: 
do markets push the, they push things up also cause them to push down? It should be the case. But Alan, your point on that? I mean, I I personally don't think they're going to do it. But can you see the banks sort of using the Banking Royal Commission or competition as an argument to cut rates off off the back of funding markets falling? Uh, well, uh, um, the the reason that there's uh, out of cycle interest rates, or at least banks increasing rates uh, without the RBA doing it, is because savings in Australia aren't enough to fund the banking mm-hmm. loans, and the reason for that is, of course, the savings uh, rate has fallen, saving rate has collapsed uh, in Australia as uh, property prices went up, uh, everyone saved less, not in Australia. So the banks had to go offshore for their funding, and um, uh, offshore interest rates rose. I think yep. you're referring to that. So interest, offshore interest rates rose. Um, even though domestic rates didn't rise, so that obviously had to be passed through. Now, um, the the couple of re- the thing is that uh, as if uh, offshore interest rates fell, uh, which they haven't done yet, they might do. If America goes into recession, they'll definitely fall. Um, then, then yeah, maybe you know, obviously their funding uh, costs would fall. So then the question is, well, would the would the banks use that as, as an opportunity to expand their margins and make more money? And that would depend a bit on um, on what competition has sprung up uh, in the wake of the Royal Commission. Now, um, uh, I've been talking to a few of these new neo banks, um, like uh, Ginger Vault eighty six four hundred. They're all getting licenses, or Vault's got a license. The others are applied for them. They could actually start to put some funding pressure, some pressure mm-hmm. on the banks to cut their cut their interest margins, because they've all got low rates. They've all got low costs and therefore low rates. Um, so, for example, the, the the average net interest margin of the big four banks is about 2%, 1.9 mm. to 2%. But the average uh, net interest margin of the new digital banks led by Vault, now that they've got a, um, a licence, uh, will be about 1.5%. So it might seem like not much, but that's quite a big difference. Particularly and when you've got lower costs, much, put, much lower costs. Well, that's the point. That's why they're able to do it. So it... it it may be that the banks find that they can't actually uh, use any reduction in interest rates, uh, funding uh, interest rates for themselves to um, expand their margins and they actually have to chase the market uh, and keep things down. So, look, uh, it'll depend on what happens to offshore interest rates and obviously also if if, uh, the RBA cuts rates here, that could obviously result in a reduction in interest rates. Um, but uh, I think what you're looking for there is that uh, if there's a U.S. recession, then offshore interest rates might come down, and um, you know you could get a rate cut by the banks. That's out yeah, of I agree with you. I think it's more likely to come from the RBA and the possibility of them cutting rates before you probably see a movement in in the banks doing it themselves. Just actually staying on on you know things like Vault, etc., because I think that's the the real next interesting question that we've also got coming through from Daniel, and he's wrote, are you invent- investing in wax? And for those of you out there who are not unsure what I mean by wax, wax is spelled W-triple-A-X, which stands for WiseTech, Appen, Altium, Afterpay, and Zero. Uh, uh, that's the first time I've heard that really? acronym, Yeah, yeah, Evan. It, this it's is, a new one. Um, so this is our, this is our reversion of yes, FANGS, F-A-F-A-N-G, which is Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Uh, what is it? A- Apple, Amazon, and Netflix, Google. and Google. This is our version uh, of that. Well, right? oh, yeah, geez, is it? I don't know. I mean, that's that's the question, isn't it? Is it? Is it our site? I mean, how am I? Am I investing in WiseTech, App, and Altium, Afterpay, and Zero? If you look at them individually, they're very, very exciting, interesting individual companies. 
the caveat that comes with them, they're hugely risky. I mean, we're talking, let's just take Afterpay as the example. I mean, everybody probably knows the story. They understand how it works. The fact that you obviously have your your four payments that are interest-free for whatever product you're offering. And it is certainly very well picked up by not just, you know, people under 40, but across the whole market. So it's very, very exciting. The question is a regulatory overlay, whether or not the government starts asking the question, you're basically providing credit to people that don't necessarily have the ability to repay that you recuperate you know funds by obviously having late fees the reason i highlight it is that after pay in a single solitary trading day alone can move up or down 10 percent. in fact sometimes they move even more than that so it's a they are risk that's what my caveat to them is the the movement in them is very very strong and for that reason they are quite risky in terms of how you look at them from an investment so am i personally looking at wax certainly look at them am i investing no i'm not i think that if you look at wise tech wise tech's moved up something like 98 percent since they bottomed out in december so they're at alone but are millennials are millennials in general investing yes, in tech stocks they love in them. there's no doubt about that i mean if you listen to what they're talking about and again not let's take afterpay one of afterpay's biggest competitors in zip is certainly one that if you listen to a lot of millennials they are very excited about trying to get exposure to it in whatever way they can uh it's the same with something like wise tech as well where they are looking at that space because uh, this is because they've this is because they've gone off crypto yeah i'd agree i mean crypto- they're gonna buy something else <laughs> i mean the thing is you can't buy a house so so they can't buy a house they can't invest in property because they've got too dear or they've come down now uh so they started they started playing with cryptocurrencies that turned into a, a nightmare a, uh a dumpster yeah. fire and um and now it's tech stocks well fair enough mm. there you go well, look, if it was me, getting back to your point about fangs, if it was me and you know, caveat out there is that I do think tech's exciting. I just think tech's exciting overseas and I'd much prefer to sort of still have exposure to somewhere like the NASDAQ. At least it diversifies my risk across 100 stocks rather than five very small. So have you invested Have you invested in a NASDAQ ETF? Um, oh, yes, I have. have you, so there you there go. You put that out there. Um, you know, I, I have indeed, and I do it on the Australian market, so I actually do it through the BetaShares ETF, which is the easiest and cheapest and simplest way to do it. It means that I don't have to stay up till you know 2 a.m. in the morning trying to actually get involved with it overnight because the U.S. market's open then. I can do it during the Australian session and, and actually buy it on market in Australian dollars without having to worry about sort of the issue of you know double moving. So, yes, I am invested in that way. Probably the question to you, Alan, are you looking at tech or are you looking somewhere else? Uh, oh, well... Um I I I I'm just trying to think. What have I invested in tech? I can't remember. <laughs> now. Oh God! Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I've I've invested in a couple of tech stocks. I guess none none mm. of the wax, uh, as far as I can tell. No, no, I'm not in any of the wax. Um, but now that we, we need to have a, a wax ETF, I'll oh, give it time. Didn't didn't give they? Time, it'll happen. Isn't there yeah, a fang? Yes, there is. Isn't there a yeah, fang ETF? Is. Yeah. No, give it time. That that that'll definitely right. happen. I mean, that's just too good a little pocket up to, to do. I mean. The question that comes with it from the other side, though, is whether or not there will be enough actual volume um, to, to make it. So, again, not trying to get a little bit too technical here, but having, again, those kind of companies, WiseTech, Appen, Altrium, Afterpay, and Zero, they are smallish companies when you compare them to the bigger end of, t- of town and wrapping them up in a small little ETF sounds like a good idea. It's whether or not there'd actually be enough volume there to make a market every day because again an etf has to be traded pretty much from 10 to 4 on the asx all the all the way through but evan you know um 
Millennials are uh, long-term investors, unlike someone like me, 66. <laughs> I mean, I've only got about 30 years yeah, exactly. left of uh, investing. But, um, you know, millennials have got a lot longer than that. So they can – I mean, the, the question of whether the afterpay goes up or down, up and down 10% in a day is irrelevant. I mean, it's all about what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Um, so it's it's the, the volatility for them. The, the risk is not the volatility on a daily basis. That's risky. That's risk for professional investors who um, don't want you don't look at beta and you know volatility as being the risk. A millennial like yourself investing for the long term, well, you know, risk is whether whether these these things turn out to be good companies in the end or not. Yeah, that's true. Sure. I mean, the, the question that you're really asking is that, do I believe Afterpay will be here in 30 years? And that's sort of probably the the next part of it. And the way you could probably, and it's a little bit of a stretch, I understand that, the way I would look at it is look at somebody like Flexi Group, which is sort of the inverted commas, old style of, of what we're talking about here with payday lending, you know, your Sergi Easy Pays and your um, sort of your zero interest, et cetera, is what Flexi Group had. They have survived, but they're certainly not the kind of company that they were when they were back in the 2000s or even sort of through the 10s as well, where they were a little bit more exciting in that space. So that's probably the better question is that, yeah, you're right. You can look through the intraday volatility and you should absolutely do that because time in this scenario, I agree, is, is almost inverted commas slightly irrelevant because you've got such a long period of time. The question for some of these companies is it do you see them surviving and that's probably the the next question tech is a you know it's one of those spaces and i would highlight look what happened 99 2000 through the dot-com bubble over in the us it's just a different sort of style of it now is that those companies in fang are the ones that got through it now you take out facebook because it didn't exist but you look at something like apple you look at something like uh, google google particularly is the best example i mean it survived the search engine sort of crisis so i can remember going back in the day there was about 15 different search engines you could use all of them listed on the nasdaq and there's only realistically one left yahoo's holding on by its fingernails um you know then you had microsoft bring in their own sort of stuff like Bing, etc that sort of destroyed the rest of them so that's the question isn't it it's not about yeah the intraday volatility it's whether or not you believe the company long term is viable I think we better leave it there, Evan. With that in mind, if you do want to get in touch with us, please write in. We have an email address. It's podcast with an S at investmart.com.au or you can reach us on our Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is Evan Lucas underscore INV. Alan? Oh, just at Alan Kohler. And uh, thank you so much again for listening in. Please send us in those questions. We look forward to speaking to you again in one fortnight. Thanks, Evan. It's been a blast. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>